Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I have with me Habiba Kande. He is an author, a sex educator, historian, and the founder of irritologyinstitute.com. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Kareem. Nice to see you again. You too, sir. Wa alaikum assalam barakatuh. So one of the reasons why I, we first spoke was because of this lovely book. Everyone can see this. It's a great book uh, on sex education from an Islamic tradition. So many lovely resources from hadiths and references to Quranic principles, what scholars have said, and then even some practical modern advice. I know that you have a, a second book um, on this topic called Kinsif? Kunyaza. Kunyaza, Kunyaza, that's right. And I want to learn more about that today, inshallah, because I haven't read that one. I got to pick it up from Amazon when I get back to the States, inshallah. But uh, are you working on any books currently right now? Yeah, I do actually have got two. Um, so one is a translation of a classical te text written by um, an Egyptian scholar, a well-renowned scholar called um, Imam Asiyuti. So he wrote an, a book, a sex manual. So I'm, I'm translating that and also trying to contextualize it for modern day readers. So I'm not just doing a simple translation. I'm giving obviously a commentary as well. And then there's another book which I'm um, writing working titles, the 40 hadiths of um, gender interaction and sexual ethics. I want to kind of talk about how um, male-female interactions was during the time of the Prophet, peace upon him, and, and the first community of Muslims. Um, and again, contextualize it for modern day readers as well, and also to illustrate the importance of sexual consent and sexual ethics and how it was understood, not only in the first community, but also how people benefit from it um, in, for modern day audiences. So they're the two like working titles that I've been, I've been working on that I'm trying to finish, um, hopefully, later this year or early 2024 inshallah mashallah that sounds awesome man i love it such a good took me out because they kind of promote safe sex and how to put on a condom and birth control so essentially it's like promoting zina from an islamic uh, perspective right um but i also know that everything i learned right about what is masturbation how is a baby born i learned all those things from outside of my parental units or my family it was through friends or you know being exposed to things uh, over the years um so that is kind of the western notion of i guess sex education and nowadays of course they have concepts of sexuality versus gender that's now a construct that's placed into sex ed but from all your research and, and understanding from the islamic traditional perspective what would sex education be and do we even have a concept of sex education? Maybe we can start with that. Like, is there sex ed in Islam? And if so, how would we maybe define that for the Muslim audience? Very good question. I would say, yes. So from an Islamic framework, and by obviously Islamic framework, I'm referring primarily to the Quran, which is our our holy book and the, the Sunnah or the life and the way of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which is um, maintained or documented in, in, in traditions known as hadiths. We have many examples both in those two sacred sources of the Quran and the Hadith where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty, and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him spoke very frankly about what we consider to be maybe sex ed or human sexuality. So, and I think unfortunately in many Muslim communities we're somewhat, shall I say, obsessed with the rulings in terms of what is what you can and can't do. But one thing I don't think many Muslims are aware of is that especially if you look at the, the, the hadith and the sunnah tradition you have many examples of the prophet peace be upon him not only speaking about obviously what is 
permissible and what's impermissible, but also speaking about sexual ethics and sexual and and sexual pleasure as well, which often I think we don't really kind of hear about. We know generally speaking what is what is allowed and what's not allowed, but in terms of how one should be in terms of in relations um, towards their spouse and the importance of prioritizing um, their spouse's sexual satisfaction, especially the sexual satisfaction of women, that's often not really heard about. And I think again, I think especially when we look at sex ed how it's understood in the first muslim community or the first i would say three four hundred years of the of islam compared to how it's understood in in many muslim communities nowadays it's quite different because i think they their understanding of sex is that yes sex is an act which can be a means to earn the pleasure of allah so that's why it could be a form of worship if obviously if one is having sexual relations with their spouse um, as opposed to having sexual relations with so and even the way the prophet muhammad peace upon him and the way that a number of the scholars spoke about it it wasn't just speaking about the rules which again you find in many muslim communities and it wasn't just speaking about the mechanics or the biology of sex or how to have like safe sex which is quite prevalent in western sexual education it was one that was like i said all encompassing speaking about the spiritual element how it can be a means like i said to earn divine rewards it spoke about like the physical act in terms of what is good sex what is bad sex what is um unhealthy sex shall we say um and it also spoke about sexual pleasure which again in the western education system i don't think we hear much about especially in relation to women's sexual satisfaction whereas from the islamic tradition a lot of the Muslim scholars, inspired by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, spoke very candidly about the importance of men delaying their gratification to ensure that their wife is sexually satisfied, sometimes even ensuring that she's sexually satisfied before he's sexually satisfied, because generally, as we know from men, it's, very, very, it's relatively quite easy for a man to be sexually satisfied, whereas for women, generally speaking, not only the, the women need the, the physical component but also the emotional and psychological component which again i think many men generally aren't really um, as aware of so it's quite interesting that, that again like when you read and study and kind of reflect upon how sex was taught in the early muslim community and pre-modern times it was quite a holistic approach that wasn't like i said just speaking about the legality of sex or the biology of sex but also speaking about the importance of sexual ethics and sexual pleasure wonderful so it sounds like there's three parts here from your research that there's what is allowed and not allowed Islamically as far as sexuality, then there's sexual ethics, and then the science and art of sexual pleasuring of each other, which you could even argue falls under the rights and responsibilities of husband and wife, right? But that oftentimes it's been neglected that the woman is half the population and also has that right. It's not just uh, the man. Um, and so by satisfaction, I'm assuming you're referring to climax or orgasm for, for women, as well as emotional, psychological, you know, validation or affection and so forth, right? In other words, you know, don't treat your wife like a piece of meat. Correct. Um, yes and no. So I'm, I'm, I intentionally use the word sexual satisfaction as opposed to orgasm because you can have a pleasurable sexual experience without having an orgasm. It's important True. that people understand that because there is somewhat of, um, especially nowadays, especially in the West where, yes, there is this onus and encouragement for more women to experience sexual orgasm. But some women, like I said, might have a fulfilling, fulfilling sexual experience without having an orgasm. And as long as the experience is fulfilling and pleasurable, then you don't necessarily need to have an orgasm. So this idea of there being like an orgasm imperative, I don't think that's something that we should necessarily embrace because again as long as one is satisfied and fulfilled obviously with their spouse that's the most important thing as opposed to 
saying that she has to have an orgasm or she has to, for example, squirt or climax. So that's why I, I prefer to use the term sexual satisfaction or sexual fulfillment, fulfillment, but it does encompass orgasm, but it doesn't have to include orgasm. Right. Yeah, could even just include intimacy satisfaction. Like some women, you know, from my understanding, they are like, I just want you to hold me for 20 minutes. That's my, you know, that that's better to me than sex, like just holding me tight, for example. So right. it doesn't even always have to get sexual, but it's more about presence, intimacy, connection, love. Right, right. And I, I think it's quite, um, and I, I love the, obviously int that now more Muslims are embracing speaking about intimacy and like even like love languages, especially given the popularity of um, Gary Chapman's work with the five love languages. But one of the things that I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't be shy to talk about is sexual satisfaction as well, because like you mentioned, there are some women who are more than happy to be comfortable, um, to be fulfilled with emotional intimacy without any form of physical gratification or sexual satisfaction. But there are some women who do want sexual satisfaction, but because either A, maybe they don't have the, um, they don't feel entitled to it, or they think it's a taboo topic because of how they've been raised. Um, and some men feel that women just want intimacy in a, in a sense of love and relationship, but they don't actually want sexual satisfaction. Whereas again, when you look at our tradition, the scholars of the Swaz spoke very frankly, not only about emotional fulfillment that women desire, but also about sexual satisfaction. So that's why, again, that encompasses, like I said, sexual satisfaction, not only the emotional element, but also the physical gratification. And again, it varies from woman to woman. So if a woman finds emotional satisfaction is fulfilling enough for her to, for her to be satisfied, then that's fine. That's great. And if another woman finds she wants also sexual satisfaction in the form of an orgasm, then again, the onus is then hopefully on the man. And obviously they're working together as a, as a couple to try and ensure that the wife reaches that, um, that goal. Let's call it a goal of satisfaction. But I think it's important that we are, and that's something that again, for my research and studies is that the Muslims of the past, they understood and respected the diversity of human beings in terms of what their wants and needs are, because I think oftentimes we have this, the way Islam is taught is that you just have this one image of a, like you could say, a Muslim woman, that this is all a Muslim woman wants or needs, and she doesn't necessarily want other things that, again, within the context of a lawful relationship I'm talking about, that a woman like doesn't initiate sex or she's or it's not befitting or unbecoming of a woman to initiate intimacy and that's that's more i would say a cultural understanding that not, that's not necessarily um from the religion because we've got different examples of women initiating or even asking for a man in marriage now we know that in many communities even in our so-called western liberated liberated societies that is extremely taboo for a woman to propose to a man but we have examples of that within our tradition in the first community of muslims where there were examples of women proposing to men um for marriage and it's reported in authentic hadiths like um like bukhari's um, collection and what's fascinating as well is that you also have some people who were taken aback and troubled by it so one particular example where a woman proposed to the prophet peace be upon him in front of men and women there was a group and Anas who was a, a companion his daughter she saw that and she was troubled by that and she accused the woman of, of lacking haya, of lacking shame but then Anas the, her father corrected her and said that no she desired she saw a man that she desired a righteous man and she offered herself in marriage there's nothing wrong with that so we have examples that even amongst early community some people had different levels in terms of what they considered to be shall we say acceptable so I think it's important that we as Muslims understand that because because you might not be comfortable with one particular 
act or thing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's un-Islamic or it's haram. It might be right. not right for you, which is fine. Um, but to say that that that's that should be the case across the board, I think we're doing somewhat of a disservice to people who maybe who may feel comfortable to maybe, like I said, initiate intimacy in their relationship and things like that. But because of certain cultural taboos, they feel that they can't because that's not what a Muslim or a good Muslim should shouldn't do. Right. Yeah, we've got a long way to go, bro, when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> you know, different. You know, the difference between cultural psychology, um, understanding of Islam, and personal preferences, and then judgment in between. But I want to bring it back to, okay, so you broke down a little bit more about how Islamic education does exist in our tradition. It's something the scholars have written on thoroughly. Now, here's the other part, right? I have kids, um, and there's, of course, that part of me even with my wife, we had the discussion of like, when do we talk to our kids about stuff? Because it's going to come up. Um, and I mean, I'm a marriage counselor as well. And I've spoken to many couples who they didn't get any tutorials <laughs> about anything. They just, you know, fig bismillah and figure it out on your own. And look, that's not necessarily a, you know, horrendous thing or necessarily going to set you up for failure. But Naturally, we will have less anxiety and fear when we understand something, when we're more prepared for something, including sexual activity in our marriage, right? So do the scholars in what you've researched ever give advice around when to talk about sex ed to your children? Like, and if so, what do you talk about? Are you, you know, as straight as you need to be, you know? Um, actually, just recently, my seven-year-old, who asks a lot of very profound questions, like everything, like what would happen if the sun didn't exist? Or, you know, to, what, can the jinn ever beat the angels in a fight? Like, he's just all over the place with great questions. And one day he asked me at age seven, where do babies come from, Baba? And I was really caught off guard, you know? So I just stuck with a very you know, basic scientific explanation. I said, the man has a special type of water and he puts this water in, shares this with the mother and the mother has a special type of biological egg. And I said, it's not an egg like the eggs we eat for breakfast. And it's not a water that we drink. It's, it's a different type of water. And he said, okay, how, does, how do you do this exchange? And then I stopped and I said, that's something I'll tell you when you get older you know, exactly how that happens. But dad has a special type of water. Mom has a special type, type of egg. And when these come together, they start to form the body. And then Allah chooses to blow a soul into it or not. But at seven, he's already, you know, because he's a very scientific minded kid. So he likes to always ask the nature of things, the cause of things, the roots of things. What are trees made of? What is this made of? Where do babies come from? And so that was the answer I gave him. But did you research anything or in your research find out any advice from the ulama or scholars around how to approach the subject within our family, specifically with children, either, either pre-puberty or puberty or before they're getting, getting married in their 20s or 30s? Yeah. What are your so, thoughts? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. So because a lot of my research was based on pre-modern scholars, a lot of the, their work speaking about sex and sexuality was aimed at adults and and the reason why I think it's important that we understand this is because obviously in the pre-modern age, they didn't really have this idea of childhood that we have now in terms of like adolescence, that it can extend up until like 18. So a child could be, maybe can end up to maybe seven, eight 
nine years of age. And then, then even in some cases, in some cultures, that's even when people enter like marriage and, and, and relations. Now, of, of course, in our modern age, that's more or less impossible if, well, no, it's illegal, it's unlikely to happen. So that's why I think there is a need. And I've come across some contemporary scholars who have kind of spoken about, okay, when is the right time and age to speak to your children? And um, um, so it's mainly the contemporary scholars or researchers. What's up, everybody? If you like the show, please subscribe, like, share with your friends, and sponsor us at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to rely on in terms of discussing this as opposed to like the classical scholars. Um, and a number of them, what they've either said is obviously ensuring that the information that you provide, provide is age appropriate because it will depend on not only the age, but also the maturity of the child. And also mm -hmm. in some cases, there are some parents, although they have the knowledge, they feel embarrassed or uncomfortable for whatever reason to impart that knowledge. So then they entrust maybe whether it's a, another scholar or another teacher or someone within the community, like a, a um, an uncle or aunt to impart that knowledge. And in traditional, like especially in traditional um, East African and some West African cultures, which I'm quite familiar with as well, that knowledge isn't necessarily taught by the parents. It's taught by like an elder uncle or an elder aunt. And that's even my own personal experience as well. So. Although, yes, I did have sex education in, in the schooling system, which was quite mechanical and biological. But in terms of like speaking about sex and how a man should be and things like that, and not just going into the halal and haram, but how you should be as a man and talking about and even answering some of my questions that I had. I didn't have those conversations with my, parent, my parents. I had it with an, an, older uncle, um, an older cousin or an uncle, and I felt more comfortable to have that relationship with them. So I think, and you know, you've got this saying that it's a village that raises a child. And sometimes I feel that whilst the parent might feel uncomfortable to maybe to have that conversation even even if the child is an adult there's some parents that just don't want to have that conversation with with their child and i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that but as long as they can entrust or they can impart they can someone else that they trust can give them that 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 knowledge obviously within an islamic framework so if the parents is not necessarily equipped and again i don't mean that they don't have the knowledge but to explain it in a way where even they have that relationship with their child, they can maybe impart someone, like I said, a reliable person in the community can impart that knowledge. But one thing I would say, especially for parents, is that the children are going to find out about this whether they like it or not. And yeah. uh, and it's obviously, especially with girls, you find that especially it's quite troubling or difficult, especially for fathers with their with their female um children is obviously they always look at them as you know innocent and things like that and it's not to say if you're exposed to sex you're not innocent anymore because again i would argue that's a sort of a victorian christian framework but it's understanding mm. what is acceptable to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if you're instilling in them to first and foremost have a relationship with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is what allah allows this is what allah does not like then obviously when they're even coming across even amongst their peers or on TV or what have you, they're going to come across like boyfriend-girlfriend relationships and other forms of relationship. But then they're not thinking about, oh, I can't do this because mom and dad said I can't do this. It's because this is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think that's the starting point, that God consciousness should be instilled in the child from a relatively young age. And then when, if it's going to be from their parents or someone else that is going to be telling them in terms of what is allowed and what's not allowed or different relationships, they're going to first think about, okay, is this not something that Allah would like? Not necessarily that my mum and dad is not going to like or the culture, because I think, again, if you're going to wait, and again, it's a case-by-case -case basis, but to wait until the child is about to get married or maybe when they're in their late teens, by that time, nine times out of ten, they've been exposed to sex, whether it's by way of pornography. I mean, there's some studies that have stated that 
even amongst Muslim um, children, like up to 60% are viewed pornography. And I know some people are troubled by that, but that's just a reality. Predominantly men, but also girls as well, um, whether it's by their peers. So even if they're in Islamic school, they are going to be exposed to relationships. Now, again, if the parent themselves do not feel that they're ready to have that conversation, they should be someone, again, like I said, whether it's an uncle or an aunt or someone that they trust that should be able to, that the child can open up to. And not everyone, again, I'm trying to be realistic, not idealistic, not everyone is going to have a really open and transparent relationship when it comes to sexual matters with their child. And we just have to be honest with that. But if there are trusted people within, like you could say, your community, that they can have that conversation with your with your child, and obviously then you can feed back with that person, I think that's the best way to kind of, because they're going to learn whether we like it or not. And it's not right. just like the mechanics and the scientific in terms of how a baby is conceived but in terms of relationships because it will have that feeling for someone of opposite sex and it can start as young as nine ten but then how do you navigate those feelings you right. know you don't want to have sense, so it sounds to me um picking up off that point it sounds to me like we also have to have the discussion with children not just on the biology or the science or the you know halal and haram which often we talk about like no girlfriends no touching but even the concept of lust itself, right? Sexual passion, desire, um, biochemically, what's happening in our bodies and why, you know, you know, once you, for example, if you're a male or a female and you're now producing uh, eggs or sperm, there is a biological incentive or drive to feel more drawn to the opposite sex by our nature, right? So this is something also we would, we need to discuss. And um, I'm very in interested in knowing, like, when you got that talk from that uncle, like, how did he break it down for you? Do you remember, like, what was that conversation like in short? Yeah, it was, um, so my uncle, although he was obviously significantly older than me, but he, he, I, he was like my older brother that I didn't feel, and the reason why it's important, like, like, even for me, having a relationship with someone like him was that I could be open with him, so I can talk about those girls that that at that time that I was I, I was interested in and he was telling me about the realities and obviously being careful and not just saying because we both know what is wrong and what is right so like I said he didn't shut me down and but he was warning me but in a way that I can understand that you have to be careful so he and he didn't like I said the way he navigated speaking about lust and desires is that he first acknowledged that it's natural that you have these desires but then also spoke about the dangers and not obviously to have your lust get over um take over and in terms of so that so that's so also so that's important to understand the consequences and then obviously then bring in talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that and he didn't even bring my parents which I think is really important and I think I kind of appreciated that is that because my parents especially at that age still and probably up until maybe really recently considered me to be a child if that makes sense they always will. <laughs> and they always will that's why uh -huh. like I said it, it can be quite difficult to expect the parents have that relationship with their child because they always see that they are still their child but they always see them as like innocent and things like that whereas he saw me as although i was young becoming like a, a man so i felt like i was having a conversation with a young man with an older man so there was like mutual respect and also that's why like i said i can open to him more in terms of what i was going through and then he can like i said advise me in a way where i was more receptive to to listen to what he said whereas i don't think i could have had that same conversation with my father and again, that's, and I'm perfectly fine with that, but there are some parents who maybe are equipped to have that conversation with, with, their, with their children. But one thing I would say is that you have to recognize that your child is now 
becoming an adult because Islamically speaking, once a child reaches puberty from Islamic law, they are considered to be like an adult in the sense of they are now res- responsible being in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, but again, because we, they've been socialized, is that no, they're still a child until, in some cases, until they're 18 or until they maybe left my house and got married and this and the other. And that's, you're doing them somewhat of a disservice. So, for the parents, I think, like what's similar with my uncle, he treated me like an adult, even though I was relatively young. And that's what allowed me to open up and talk about, you know, some of the stuff that I was going through, I was feeling. And he was able to, like, educate me without shutting down and just saying, that's haram, you can't have these feelings, or making me feel, you know, I'm less of a Muslim, so to speak. So he did acknowledge me, but then also advised me as well in terms of what is, how you should go about um, these feelings that you're feeling. Right. I mean, I noticed this even with my young kids, like when I just sit up, sit down, look them in the eyes, talk to them as if they're my equal in a sense, right? Not that I'm talking down to them or I'm, you know, authoritative. They'll receive whatever message I'm giving them more so than, you know, do what I tell you or else, or you're bad if you don't listen or live like this. So really it's about trying to make sure that you're connecting with them and then helping them internalize the meaning so that they can understand right with you and if they understand with you then they can take it on as their own um you know principle or part of their personality right but it takes practice for sure you know (laughs) um but i do find that a lot more effective so you know how have you what kind of issues have you come across with your work in the muslim community because i know that you know me sometimes talking about psychology, I mean, I've heard people say, we don't need psychology, brother, we just need the Quran and Sunnah, right? Um, and, and that's like psychology. So what about a guy who's going around trying to teach people about female pleasure, orgasm, Sunnah, uh, sexual fulfillment, eroticism? I mean, there must have been some pushback or difficulties at times from the Muslim community. And I'm sure many have also embraced it and found it refreshing. I would say pushback is probably an understatement. So there's been, <laughs> Punch, much there's push- been pushback. Huh? Yeah. yeah, there's been much um, pushback and um, backlash. And, and I was somewhat expecting that. So again, because like a, I'm well aware of that. And that was one of the reasons what, why I wanted to write the book, A Taste of Honey, because I was quite surprised by the attitude. Obviously, I'm born and bred in a Muslim household. I've gone to various mosques um, from different communities, not only a Daisy, predominantly a Daisy mosque, predominantly West African mosque, predominantly Arab mosque. But I was quite surprised when I went to actually formally study Islam, the disconnect in terms of how how sex and sexuality and eroticism was understood in the first and early Muslim communities and early scholars compared to now. It's like, okay, we're all Muslims, but why is it such a taboo nowadays? And again, it was tr- trying to understand, okay, what happened? Um, and then realizing that, okay, if I'm going to be talking about this, like, like there is... Um, examples in Islam, in, in the Islamic tradition of scholars and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and the companions, both men and women speaking about this topic, a lot of people again will feel uncomfortable with it because then I think they're not aware of this tradition. So that's why, and again, that's what I tried to the, the book was to okay, bring examples from, it's not me talking, saying, oh, I think we should speak about sex. I think it's great to talk about female pleasure and women's orgasm. No, no, because I would think, okay, who's this perverted young guy kind of talking? It's like, actually, I'm giving examples. And again, because a lot of these um, traditions are in Arabic, but fortunately now many of these hadiths have been translated in English and are now even publicly available in websites. I'm just giving, I'm just combining it and just, summarize it in a way where okay there you there you go because unfortunately a lot of our 
religious leaders, imams, da'is, what have you. I think because they are also somewhat uncomfortable with talking, they're well aware of what I'm saying and, the, and these um, and verses and these um, traditions, but they maybe choose to ignore them for whatever reason. So again, it's really just a case of I see my my role is just kind of presenting it for anyone who wants to learn that we have got um, precedent in our tradition. This isn't, I'm not inventing anything new. Um, and if and and the need is for hopefully to inspire people to not only take up this mantle and obviously help those who need it because especially like the contribution of women in terms of speaking about this topic we don't really hear about it and as men naturally we do have a blind spot it's very easy for me to talk about it but I also wanted to give examples of our tradition where you have female scholars speaking about the importance of women's sexual satisfaction and marital intimacy and teaching men and I think that is something that we don't really we kind of not really are aware of that if many of our greatest male scholars they were taught by women and a lot of what we learn about the hadith tradition comes from our mothers the mothers of the believers so from how the prophet muhammad peace upon him was in the, in the household not just in the sense of how the prophet was peace upon him in terms of mending his his shoes and helping the housework we hear a lot about in terms of how he was as a husband but we don't really hear much about how he was in terms of intimate relations and there are hadiths related by um his wives speaking about that to teach us it's not you know this is something that we need to learn from so as men this should be the example so the same way a lot of us we put so much pride in being financial providers but if you look at the hadith tradition the prophet muhammad peace be upon him there's so many hadiths teaching men the importance of ensuring that you are good to your women that you're he's the best of men to 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 women so he's someone that we should be inspired by. And you've got not only statements from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but also his wives about how he was attentive in the bedroom. So again, this should be our example and our framework. But because I think many of us are not aware of it, again, naturally, of course, there will be some cultures and some people who will be taken aback by it. And that's why, of course, there is obviously the backlash and or the pushback. But again, my work is not for everyone. There's some people, again, have got different tolerance levels. And if it's something that someone's very uneasy about, then it's not for them it's fine but those who are interested and are intrigued um and they want to learn about it then you know hopefully they can somewhat benefit from it so that that might, maybe become quite thick-skinned as well and i'm not an idealist as well where i expect everyone to embrace it and it can take some time um but at least um and hopefully that's what i wanted to do with writing a book is that it's a reference point so you don't necessarily need to you know go to one of my workshops or come to me you don't need to obviously see me in person but you've got sources and then you can kind of find out for yourself if what i'm saying is 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 true or not and then again you can use that information hopefully to kind of help people maybe struggling in their their marital relations or even prior to their prior to being married again i i recommend this book to a lot of my clients for you so uh inshallah people pick that up and check it out we'll have references in the show as well um, and the Prophet and his wives were the most modest. So if they're sharing these things, then who are we to say, no, 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 we don't want to talk about it. And again, sure, everyone has their threshold or their tolerance or familiarity. But at minimum, we should, um, you know, designate this task or discussion to those who are comfortable. Right. And it's just another thing in our community that it's important for us to address, especially in the formative years of our children and adolescence. I mean, most people are just told girlfriends are haram, sex is haram. And then when you're 25, you're being arranged 
expected to talk to somebody and decide to marry them after a month or three, you know, if you're lucky. And so it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's just, Islam is an integral holistic tradition and really a way of life, or it offers principles and guidance, insights on every aspect of life, then sexuality, just like eating and drinking, is just as vital and just as natural and just as necessary. Uh, so again, I'm, you know, it's great that you're doing this work. Um, but where do you think the taboo comes from in the Muslim community? Do you think that has to do with we overemphasize the hayat or modesty principle and bashfulness principle because we do we are a very modest tradition, right? Men and women should dress modestly. We should have modest character when we interact with one another. Even men, like men, can't get naked in front of each other according to Islam. Like you have a you have a certain aura that you are allowed to expose or not expose. Right? We don't have this concept of everyone's naked getting dressed in the gym to go play cricket or whatever, right? You, you still have a level of bashfulness. So does this, do you think this comes from, let's say, being very safe with this principle of taboo? Or do you think there's also some historical context to this? Um, specifically, you know, I can think of the British, right? The British were in Nigeria, they were in Egypt, they were in India, they were in a lot of places. And they came, of course, with their own um, worldview uh, around sexuality. Yeah, I would say um, two points. The first, yes, Haya, like you've mentioned, modesty, um, bashfulness, um, however you want to translate it, that has, it's integral to our religious, our, our tradition and our heritage. Um, but what I would argue is how it's been interpreted has changed over time. And many of us have adopted our arguing, you refer to like the British, the British, Victorian, Christian understanding of some of these concepts. And that's why for many people, it's quite difficult. Again, I'm referring to especially amongst Muslims who are, you know, practicing religious, however you want to refer to. But it's difficult for people to understand how can someone be modest, but also have sexual desires. Because some, for, for, some, for many Muslims, when they think of religious people, they think of them being somewhat asexual or just have sex for procreational purposes, which is more of a Christian Catholic understanding about sexual relation, about human sexuality and religion. So they don't look at sexuality and spirituality being interlinked. Whereas from the Islamic tradition, we don't have that issue. So even the concept, so even this idea that a woman can be the most modest of women, which we know that the, the companions um, companions were, but also speak very frankly, obviously in a not in a vulgar way about sex and intimacy. There's a disconnect amongst many Muslims because when people think about haya, they think about like some form of asexuality, or you don't talk about sex. But yeah, again, like complete like complete abstinence versus right. let's say temporary abstinence, i.e., right. not to commit zina, but it should be a topic that you're familiar with and something you are going to enjoy within the boundaries of Allah, like anything else, food, drink, fun times, etc. And we have to remember that even the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he corrected some of his companions who maybe had that understanding, who there was one particular companion who was like, I'm going to abstain from food, um, you know, meats, like food is in meat, um, not drinking, again, I'm speaking, not referring to alcohol, of course, but not drinking excessively, um, abstain from women. And he was upset when he heard about this particular companion who was very, like, religious in terms of doing the ritual worship and prayer and things like that and fasting long. But he kind of neglected what we what some people consider to be worldly aspects are halal like his wife like eating like drinking and he corrected him and said no he drinks he fasts and he also has relations with his women with his wives 
So it's important that we understand that we don't have this Christian model, which I think many Muslims do have somewhat of a Christian model when they think about modesty, when they think about human sexuality. That it's just something that, I mean, I've, I've received so many, you know, emails and messages of people asking, can I be naked with my spouse? Is it, is it, is it permissible or not? Or some are thinking that they have to have a sheet between themselves and their, and their spouse. And again, a lot of these are cultural. And, and they look at that as that is a greater form of higher. You should be the, you should be shy in front of your even your spouse, that they shouldn't see you, you naked. But they're not aware of traditions that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, encouraged, that there are traditions which the Prophet bathed with his, with his wife. And that's per perfectly fine. But again, right. if you haven't, if you, if you don't, I'm not aware of that heritage, then you would think, again, that's not like, to be really pious and to be really modest, it's you have no discussion about sex and intimacy because it's not becoming of a of a Muslim. And to you know, and even like so 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 what I would argue is that is people's understanding of some of these concepts. Like these concepts are from our tradition, but how do you define it? And then for me, I would argue that okay, your definition of haya, I mean, which you might think is not to have any conversation about sex, even if you're learning about and having you know um, perfectly. Um, age-appropriate or like not vulgar discussions about sex you consider that to be immodest but then that was an understanding of the early muslim communities so who right. has got the correct understanding of higher shall we go with them who were the best of people or should we go with us who we we are colonized people and, and I, would, I would argue that many of us have adopted like i said a, a more victorian christian understanding about human sexuality about bashfulness about even our views of women and that's why there's a disconnect in terms of us being modest people but feeling that even having even the way we treat women or even like with the whole gender segregation issue that we are more you know like fixated upon women's dress about women's conduct about what a woman can and can't say um compared to the early muslim community so that's why i think it's always important to give examples from the early muslim community because they're always our examples and then we can ref reflect and think actually maybe the way we understand what higher to be maybe we have misunderstood it or we're applying a threshold that is more excessive than what the religion actually permits so that's why it's always a, it's always an interesting one because i think higher is always is often weaponized especially um with the work that i do so you know people it's you know you lack higher you lack shame and this that, and the other but then my question is okay i understand what they're saying but maybe it's their understanding of what is higher and what is acceptable and again if it's something that they like i said are uncomfortable to having this conversation for whatever reason that's fine i'm not going to enforce it on them but to say that right. this is the but they have standard. to acknowledge it's their cultural programming as well a lot right? of people I aren't mean, aware of that that's the bottom line you know i mean i remember once giving a seminar about the import like uh and this topic came up and you know i shared with the audience you know the when omar ibn al-khattab who went to the prophet and was very worried about how he had relations with his wife the night prior he said i oh rasulullah i'm i'm destroyed or something to that effect or i'm i'm in trouble right and he said something to the effect of i entered my wife from the back and the prophet asked him like, you know, specifically, was it the vaginal or the anal canal, right? Imagine, I couldn't imagine anybody today going to their imam and the imam is like, hey, was it the vaginal or the anal? Like, how straight and direct is that? And the bottom line is, is when it comes to following the truth or addressing, you know, what's important, bashfulness, if it gets in the way of that, it can be a harm to us, 
right? And so anything in extreme has extreme consequences, including modesty. Just like if someone prayed 24 hours a day and, and was a burden on his society or his family and doesn't provide or everyone has to buy dinner every day, that, that, that's not a, a righteous man, right? You know, and so the Prophet Sunnah was balanced in moderation. As you also mentioned, he slept some nights and other nights he was with, intimate with his wives. He fasts some days, other days he eats, right? And so um, it's, it's interesting like that Umar ibn Khattab, who we all know, who was one of the best, was able to have that vulnerability, honesty, safety, comfort to be worried about something so private and then go and get clarification, right? Um, that's one that always struck me, that hadith. You're familiar with this or did I get it right? No, you, you did. I mean, there's so many hadiths like that. And what I agree with you, and, and I think this is where, because we do have people like, um, when I mean people like Omar, not in terms of how great of a man he was, but in terms of who want that information, but they feel that there are not enough people within the religious community who can, who they can open up with. And I'm saying that's a problem. Where the Prophet, because you had an example of yes, Omar, who was vulnerable and wanted to, needed guidance, but he knew that in the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is someone who is not going to shut him down, someone who's going to give him obviously the, the correct ruling and correct advice and listen to him. Whereas I think for many of us, we find it, it's, it's quite difficult to imagine, can you picture like a religious person or like a scholar responding that way? And that's a problem because we know that the scholars are the inheritors of, of the prophets, of the prophet Muhammad peace upon him. So if there's an issue where people feel that they've got these concerns, but they don't know who to turn to because they're going to be shut down, they're going to be told that, you know, you've got no shame, you've got no haya, you're a zaniya, you're a harami. This is a problematic because that was never the Prophet Muhammad's peace upon him's approach. And there were so many examples of similar to that. And one that really, there's two in particular that struck me similar to what the particular story you narrated was when um, Umm Sulaim, who was, and she wasn't an, an, an adult, she was uh, the grandmother, I think, of Ishaq. She approached the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him and with, when he was with his wife and she wanted to ask about nocturnal emission, like what's the ruling if a woman experiences a wet dream? And what was interesting about that particular story is that one of his wife, Umm Salama, when she heard about that, heard what the woman said, she she put her face in her hands and like, you know, how can you ask such a question? Al-Sha, she was like, you've humiliated women, how can you ask such a question? And then the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, not only did he acknowledge Umm Sulaim's question, he responded and told her that it's the same ruling as a man, but he also informed Aisha that no she's not like um lack of has lack of shame or lack of hair or anything like that so it's in, and that is that's an example where scholars use like Imam Josias others that you are permitted to ask about sexual relate sexual matters if there's a need so like this idea of is sex education part of our Islamic tradition it is both for the man and the woman but it's important to clarify and understand, okay, what is Islamic ruling? What am I allowed and not allowed to do? But if you don't have a space where you feel that you can get that information, people are not, because people are always going to be curious. The same, it's not really children. I think we seem to think that sex education stops at maybe age 12, 13. And that's oh, no, came, not right? at all, man. Not yeah. at all. No, I, I, I mean, I've coached adults on this topic, yeah. you know? Yeah. And there's so many examples within our tradition. And that's why, and there's more hadiths that I've come across where, the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, is teaching men about how to please their wives, how to sexually satisfy their wives. Not just speak. Tell, tell us another. Tell us another hadith or two, or kind of 
unique gems that you had found that's like, oh my God, like if only people knew about this, like what would be another one that you, you've read or come across or that struck you like the one about Allah? Okay, um, I'll say a couple. One is the famous hadith when um, a companion called Jabir, it's a very long hadith, but I'll just summarize it. He was a, a young man, he was newly married, and he was on his way back from a military expedition expedition with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and he was in a hurry. The Prophet asked him, you know, why was he in a hurry? And he mentioned that he was newly married and he was looking forward to, to be acquainted with his new wife. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, again, I'm just paraphrasing, in so many words, told him, Al-Kaysa, Al-Kaysa, which is a beautiful Arabic expression, which the scholars have mentioned means be gentle, be affectionate with your wife. As in, yes, the Prophet acknowledged, obviously, a newly married man, he obviously he's looking forward to, um, to seeing his wife, but to be gentle, to be affectionate. And there's so much that can be written. Imam al-Suti himself said that. That's hadith in and of itself. That is the foundation of the genre known as eratology or ilm al-bah. Because there's so many gems that one can get, can extract from that. That A, you the permissibility of seeking knowledge from someone who is an expert or qualified in a particular matter. So in this case, intimate relations, learning something from Al-Mustafa, learning something from the, from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, the importance of prioritizing and acknowledging women's sexual um, pleasure. Um, and also teach, teaching men in terms of how they should be in, in the bedroom to be considerate, to be affectionate. So that's a beautiful hadith, which again, again, I can spend two hours just talking about that that alone so, so what, what one thing he was saying there was don't run, don't go home and be like a rabbit with your yes, wife just go in there and drill fast and no right. uh affection no no sweetness no preparation yeah. just you know i'm back from war yeah and, get and, ready and, and also he told um Jabir as well do not enter because obviously they were traveling at night do not enter the home at night give her time to and the, the hadith is very explicit give her time to um, to group yourself, to prepare. So again, mm -hmm. it's acknowledging, it's teaching the men. Yes, we know you have needs. Yes, you know we know that you've obviously been a long way away from your your wife and things like that. But give her time to. So it's, it's, it's teaching men again, like I said, to be considerate, to be um, selfless lovers, rather than being selfish. So again, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful hadith that again we can learn and be inspired by. Um, not only that, there's a famous hadith by the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, again speaking to men. Telling them that don't be like an animal, like a wild beast when you lay when you're intimate with your wife, where you just you know you're thinking about your own sexual satisfaction, but send sweet messages, send a messenger beforehand of sweet words and kisses. Again, teaching men the importance of understanding women's um, psychology that it's not like us as men. We are generally quite easy to be aroused and we're quick to to, to be intimate with, but that's generally not the case with women. So again. Such beautiful hadiths, like again, because a lot of times, as Muslims, people focus on halal and haram, but they ignore these hadiths that are speaking about sexual ethics, about speaking about um, sexual um, conduct, which again, it's not a case of like, like some people ask, oh, do I have to kiss my wife before I'm um, having intercourse? And it's just like, actually, this is, it's, we're, not talking, it's, we're not just talking about halal and haram, this is talking about ihsan. This is my exactly. good behavior. It's, 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 it's about being, a, being a solid human being. <laughs> right. And this is, again, so when you read the hadith and it's speaking about the best of you are those who are best to their wives, and I'm the best of men to their wives. And then not only the, the example and the words of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but what did, he, what did his wife say about him? A beautiful hadith that um, that is not really spoke about much, but one that I always marvel by is um, when Amra bint Abdul Rahman, so she was a... Um, 
from the Tabi'in to the generation after the companions, a scholar in her own right. And she asked um, our mother, Aisha, who was the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, she asked him a beautiful and a really, like an amazing question. She said, how was the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, how was he when he was intimate with his wives? And then she said, he was the most affectionate of men and the most gentle of men, always laughing and smiling. SubhanAllah. This is, you know, this... Because there's one thing as men, we might feel, yes, we're great in the bedroom, we're good to our wives, this and the other, but how would our wives talk about us? And that's the true test. Because, it's, you know, like if you were to ask right. someone, how are you? You can think I'm great, but how do you, and another hadith, the hadith of um, Abu, Abu, Abu Zar, the 11 women that, and again, it's a beautiful hadith where the Prophet and Aisha was sitting um, with each other and she narrated the story about the 11 women that were talking about their husbands. And they said that we're going to talk all everything that they said they agreed. Let's tell let's tell each other about how our husbands are like and don't disclose anything. And then there's one of the women of the eleven women known as Umzar, the mother of Zar, and she spoke about her husband was very um, gentle, very affectionate, very loving, and this and that. But they later had a divorce, and she married another man. But then she said she still had that love and affection for her, her former husband. And the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him said that I'm to you like to Aisha, like Abu Zar was like Umzar, Zar, except I will never divorce you. SubhanAllah. This is so, you've, they've had models and examples, but we've got the greatest of examples. But again, when we speak about intimate relations, I think it's quite tragic, if I'm honest, that as Muslims, we don't know that side of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Both men and women alike. So we emphasize, like I said, in terms of how the Prophet was as um, in the battlefield, how he was a warrior. We, we talk about even maybe the love side, um, we talk about how he was as a father, which is wonderful. And these are all great and part of masculinity. But in terms of how he was, in terms of as a teacher to speak about intimate relations where people like Umar bin Khattab, like you mentioned, was vulnerable enough to come and speak to him. Um Sulaim was vulnerable enough to come and speak to him. And even his wives were also, um, they felt safe enough to speak to him and he never shut them down. And likewise, he, his wives felt, in, they felt safe in his presence. I think that's something that as, as Muslims, we don't really... Um, we don't really embrace or we're not really aware about enough. So I think it's important that, again, we've got the best of examples and we shouldn't feel shy to not only, to not only study and to reflect upon this, but also to use it to try and be, to, to try and implement it in our lives. So this is another neglected sunnah that I would argue that, again, as Muslims, um, like I said, the Muslims of the past took pride in the Prophet being the best of, the most romantic of men. Whereas, right. again, as us now, unfortunately, we, we think about I don't know, like Casanova and Romeo and Juliet, which are... Man, get out of here. That's what I'm saying. That's what it should be. The Rasul, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, had game, bro. He had right, game. exactly. You know, right, and that's, exactly. that's what we got to, you know... Gotta that's what we should be that. instilling even in the young people where they can look at because he was a man, and this is, again, the perfect balance. He had, and he was known a lot, he was blessed that he was very, um, he had very potent, had strong sexual desire, but he also had the ability because he was modest and God, most God-fearing, to control that. And Aosha, she talked about that and spoke about that in terms of praising him, that he can control his desires more than any of you could. So he didn't look at women with lust. Like the way, so it's not a case of having desire is bad, it's how can you control that? Right. It's having that sexual discipline. So again, when you look at the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as, as an example, when you look at the story of Prophet Yusuf, as an example, a man that, that Allah mentions, that a man that was given wisdom, a man that was very handsome a man that was in the presence of a woman that was very beautiful and attractive but why did he refrain 
out of God consciousness. So he had sexual discipline. So again, so these are examples that again, when we're instilling not only in children or young people, even as grown adults, these are examples that it's not bad in and of itself that you have these desires because it's natural, but it's how you're going to control that. And that's something, again, I, I just think the way um, sex and sexuality and desires being taught, it's some people, they feel like internal shame if they've got desires. And it's like, right. no, you shouldn't have feel shame about that because that's how you've been created is how you're going to act upon that. And again, if you're acting upon it in a lawful way, inshallah, you're going to be rewarded for that. And then if you do slip, which some people, we are human beings, you, you, can, you can slip, what do you do next? You turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are examples of, like the famous story where the man went to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and he said something similar to what Umar said, that he felt like he was, you know, he was finished. And, you know, and the Prophet said, like, why? What happened? And he mentioned that he was fondling with a woman that, again, that wasn't his wife. And the Prophet mentioned and told him that you should make tawbah. Like, there's, there's still a way out. Because, again, I think, unfortunately, people feel that, okay, I have to be this perfect Muslim, and if I slip, then all of a sudden there's no hope. And that's not yeah. what Islam teaches. You're not, you're not here to be a... a some kind of a religious robot, you know? Yes. Or what about the young man who went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, make zina halal for me. I love zina so much. And the Prophet yeah. was such a good counselor. He wasn't like, hey, get out of here, that's disgusting. Or we're in the masjid, how dare you say this? In the... You know, he used logic. It was like, yeah. imagine some, a guy wants to do what you want to do. You have a sister? He's like, yeah. He's like, imagine a guy wants to do what you want to do to your sister. How does that make you feel? Yeah. How about your aunt, your mother? And he started to realize there's an impact in society. And if I, you know, love for others, which you love for yourself. And if you hate something for yourself, then you should hate it for others. Certainly, you don't want to be the person who causes it, right? So it's like, and the man said, I walked in loving Zina more than anything. And after that counseling session, I walked out detesting it more than anything. Why? Because he used reason. He empathized with him. He didn't, you know, shut him down. He didn't make him feel... Like he was a, a pervert, you know, he understood like it's a desire. It's a maybe, you know, a struggle that the man has and he talked it out with him. And so it's almost like you need safety, accessibility and availability. Those three things are very important for establishing connection and intimacy and learning. Right. The Prophet said it made you feel safe. He was available for people, whether it was a little kid or an old grandma. And he uh, was uh, accessible. Right. And so, wait, what did I say? Safety, availability, accessible? Accessible, yes. I agree. I, th I think, no, I love that. I think um, what you mentioned, again, especially around safety, and it's quite interesting because, again, amongst a lot of psychologists now and feminists, like, they're speaking now about the importance of women feeling safe in order to feel um, aroused and sexually, uh, and sexually fulfilled and things like that. And that's something that even in debates about what constitutes consent, because it's now moved from being just a legal definition to now being a moral and somewhat political definition, because generally when people think about consent, again, I'm speaking within like a, not a Islamic framework, but they consider like lawful sex is anything that's consensual between two consensual adults. But then you can have a situation where women are consenting as in they haven't outwardly said no, but they still didn't want it because they didn't feel safe or women having sex out of politeness. So now there's even a number of psychologists and like I said, um, who are now trying to understand, okay, how can we help women have safe, good, fulfilling sex and the importance of being safe? And that's something that, and this is even something that I've noticed a number of Muslim women are kind of complaining about that. So, okay, yes, I'm married. I'm with my husband. I know it's halal, but I don't feel safe in his presence. I don't feel comfortable. 
Whereas the men haven't maybe had that education. They're thinking, you're my wife. I've got a right to have these relations. And it's like, yes, you have a right in terms of you've got a legal right. But if it's going to harm her, if it's going to make her feel pain, then you shouldn't be having intimate relations with her. But if you're just thinking about intimacy just in terms of halal and haram, yes, you've got a legal right, but it doesn't mean you have a right to have relations with her. It's going to harm her. If it's going to, like, again, if she's not feeling comfortable, safe in your presence. And this is why... I definitely think there's more work that needs to be done for women to know that they're entitled to safety and, and, and to feel pleasure, but also for men to understand, okay, yes, you're in the realm of halal relationship now that you're married, but there's still it's, work It's very simple, yeah, binary and, and superficial, I think, to think like that, yeah. you know? I mean, I've heard it from women over the years, like, I don't even enjoy sex with my husband. I just do it because I fear Allah or it's, I know it's his right. But you never hear them say, it's also, isn't it my right to have pleasure, satisfaction, safety? It's like, yes, it is. Oh, but he'll never do that. He doesn't understand, right? I mean, use, let's use a simple metaphor of eating chicken is halal. Now imagine your wife boiled chicken for you every day and just threw it on top of a boiled potato and gave it to you, said, Bismillah, here's your dinner. And you're like, what is this? It has no flavor. There's no you know, art to this. It's the same thing every time. It's so boring or unfulfilling. It's like, what are you complaining about? It's halal. I don't, and I made you food. It's like, we like things when there's ihsan, right? Some spices, some different recipes, different ways to present it. <clears throat> our sexuality is, should be no different. In fact, I would even argue in our times, we need to invest in our sexual education and our sexual um, implementation with husband and wife, because the era we live in, we've never seen a generation or a time where the fitna has been this bad, in my opinion, right? And it's only getting worse. I mean, tomorrow, Echi, we're going to have probably, uh, who knows? I mean, in fifth, we're going to have to start addressing whether or not having sex with a uh, a human android is is considered halal or haram, or is it really zina? Because it's not, it doesn't have a human soul. I mean, this is the direction we're going to, you know? We, sex dolls and androids one day, right? Uh, we already know porn is destroying so many households and people's mentalities and intimacy systems, lack of God, lack of morality in certain parts of the world, not everywhere. Um, and it's easier, especially for Muslims in the West, sometimes to go commit zina than to try to get married. I mean, I know sisters and brothers who've tried to do the halal and get married. And then all these other problems come up, whether it's the maha or the mothers got into a fight or there's racism and things keep getting postponed and they fall back on, well, I'm just going to go get a girlfriend and boyfriend. Khalas, I keep trying to do the halal and it's not working. And that's because the fitna the Muslims are causing because of their lack of education, rationale, practicality, and you know being stuck in their ways or being stubborn. And so the times we live in is so difficult for people to try to be good when it comes to sexuality already. And now on top of it, you know, we're not really offering, um, and by we, I mean, you know, Muslim communities have to also recognize that, you know, these type, this type of knowledge, education, as well as preparation, right? Like we still have the problem of helping people get married in a lot of, especially where Muslims are minorities in the West. Like it's hard for people to find a good spouse, right? Um, and so that is just included in this whole relationship dimension of our tradition that tends to be lacking, right? Um, but uh, yeah, those are some of the other thoughts that came up for me is like, if we need to be investing in our 
knowledge of sexuality, irritology more than ever today because of the fit that we live in. I wanted to get your clarification. What is irritology exactly? Um, you mentioned there's an Arabic phrase for this as well. So sexuality, from my understanding, is what you're allowed and not allowed to do as far as sexual activity, right? Um, and so that includes everything that has to do with physical contact between husband and wife that results in pleasure or connection or affection, right? So that can go from kissing to sucking an earlobe or foot massage to everything in between down to all the sexual things that can occur. And we know that there's two things that are haram in Sharia, menstrual sex and anal sex. Is there anything else that you've come across that's haram? I, I mean, maybe you could also throw in, you know, because again, there's a trend now with, uh, what's it called? Like, um, you know, p inflicting pain during sexuality. I forget the the phrase. BDSM. Yeah, like BDSM, right? Like that could be considered haram as well because it's causing, let's say, harm or something, right? Um, but like, yeah, like that's my understanding of sexuality. Is that your understanding? And what's the difference between that and now irritology or eroticism? Yeah, so erotology refers to the study of desire and 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 act of lovemaking. So that's what erotology refers to. It, it consists of two words, ero or mean from eros, which is like passionate love from from ancient Greek, and ology meaning to study something. So it's like to study desire, to study um, sexuality, essentially. So that's what erotology is, uh, and it's a study. It's 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 similar to sexology, but as you could say, it's a it's before sexology in terms of it's not only about studying human sexuality, but studying sexual ethics um, and what is considered to be like appropriate and inappropriate sexual conduct and sexual pleasure. Um, the Arabic term, ulm al bah meaning ulm meaning knowledge and al bah um, meaning sex. So generally, you refer to sexual intercourse means a study of sex, and it's generally again those two terms are used interchangeably, ulm al bah and erotology. There's also some scholars refer to ulm al bah call it ulm al nikah. So the word nikah generally, obviously, is used to refer to in a religious context to refer to marriage or the the marriage contract, but also the original meaning of nikah means sexual intercourse. So, so it, it means sex to... contract too. Nikah you could also yeah, translate it as sex sexual contract. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Because the original in Arabic meaning of nikah means penetration. So the idea is obviously in order to have like lawful sex, you obviously mm -hmm. have a marriage contract, so like a sexual contract, and. Um, and it's and it's and it's an Islamic genre, it's an Islamic science that, like I said, in pre-modern times, many Muslim scholars spoke wrote books about erotology or ulm al bal ulm al at length, such as Asiyuti. Um And it's similar to so like with fiqh, like you mentioned, which kind of deals with sexuality in terms of what is halal and what's haram, like the legal rulings. Whereas erotology, you can argue, is somewhat looking at sexual ethics and ihsan in terms of what is good conduct what is how do you get the best and most pleasurable sexual experience now generally a lot of the books of erotology written by scholars were written to men about ensuring that their wives are sexually satisfied because if you look at the hadith tradition there are more hadiths there are more um, statements teaching men about how they should ensure that their wives are sexually satisfied more than the other way around and you could argue that women have greater sexual rights than men now we do obviously know about some hadiths that speak about women uh, making um big um 
complying to the husband's wishes and in the bedroom but in terms of in terms of how to ensure that the wives are sexually satisfied and things like that there's more hadith speaking to men from the prophet muhammad peace upon him directs in terms of how they should be considerate and affectionate towards women and this like i said inspired a number of muslim scholars to kind of write um at length about not only the intricacies and the nuances of human sexuality from the Quran and the Hadith, but also from other traditions. So they read the works, the translated works of ancient Greeks about erotology, also from the works of ancient Indians, like the Kama Sutra tradition that was translated um, into into Arabic. And then you had scholars writing about this topic, but from you could say an Islamic framework. Um, and like you mentioned, which is which I do agree with that there's going to be like a thick of can you have intimate relations with um robots and all of because the, these are new issues that are really you know muslims are being affected by and you had scholars of those past speaking about issues that obviously in their respective societies that they were dealing with so fiqh is always something that's ever evolving because it's responding to human issues and one of the tra- um the troubling things just in addition to what you said that i've found especially in in in, in the uk is that not only there's a lot of difficulty to get married there's a great deal of difficulty to have a sustaining pleasurable healthy marriage because what happens um especially with i've come across with some brothers okay maybe this took them quite a while to get married now they've got married they might have spent an exorbitant mahar now they feel they have a sense of ownership over the woman and then they expect and they look at like and they they view marriage as if i've purchased you so now i have to write to you whichever way i write and that's wrong that's not islamic but this, totally. there's also that this this problem that now. But it's a, but it's a consequence of how materialistic some Muslim weddings and expectations have become, and so Correct. you do feel that right. Like I can see a person like half of my savings is gone, and for some six hour, eight hour party, so everyone can just show off and invite five hundred people I don't even know, and now you're how does that affect you psychologically as a man, and this idea of ownership. Right. Like how much I gave up or sacrificed or like, of course. And it's because we're not following the sunnah to begin with, like as far as what is a walima and, you know, Allah doesn't like those who are miserly or overspend and are exuberant and show off. So what what's the middle? Right. And nowadays, you actually have, you know, numbers that the typical young Muslim woman, like at least in the United States, like if you went around and interviewed, like how much money does your husband, future husband have to make? How much? Uh, does the mahar have to be? And they actually have numbers that they've been conditioned to think like, oh, it has to be at least 50K mahar or 100,000. Um, the ring has to be three months out, like all this rubbish, right? And these are just, you know, constructs that are going to set us up into more fitna like this, right? And again, it's not any man who does that, like thinks they own their wife or they purchased him, has you know, that's a complete misunderstanding. But I'm just mentioning how this sociological communitarian factor that we as the elders or parents who facilitate these things actually don't realize we're playing a role in causing harm in these relationships being less, not long-term and sustainable because of these types of resentments that could occur because of a lack of putting first things first, right? I think um yeah I agree with that. I think um and I've seen also that as well on 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 um our side of the pond where yeah it's like women are expecting like three times the average or higher to average man's salary in terms of like the mahar and it's just like they look at what well, it seems like they look at marriage as just quite transactional as in no if you want me that you need to pay this like 
And in some cultures, because I can understand, especially in some North African and some West African cultures, the mahar is quite high or what they would give is like an initial mahar. And then if we get divorced, there's a, a mahar that is really high. So in a sense, to protect, mahar, yes, to, yeah. protect, to protect the divorce um, the insurance. Right. So I can understand, again, from a sociological perspective, how that came about. But it's, you know, if you've got two people, they're two adults, whatever relationship, whatever, for whatever reason, the relationship doesn't work out. They've had appropriate counseling, this, that, and the other. But because of this, they can't, there's no way out. So then you're effectively trapped where the man is. And then he's still a human being. He but has pa- needs. part of that, I just want to say, like, why yeah. is this idea there, this mu'akhar, and it usually being a lot more than the mahar? Part of it is also because of our stigma around marrying someone who's been divorced. It's like if we right. didn't have that problem, yes. then we wouldn't, you know, try to ironclad every little silly situation like this and, and put such huge risk and burden. And it's like, and then we wonder why there's so many families, relationships suffering. If a guy feels like he's stuck or if he lives in the West, he doesn't want to get divorced because he knows, you know, it's not going to be helpful for him or financially and so on. I mean, yeah, there's just so many factors, I think, that influence our relationships. 100%. And that's why it's not just a one solution, because, yes, it's easy to say, follow the Quran and Sunnah, marriage should be made easy. But then the reality, like what you refer to, which I agree entirely, is that it's to protect particularly the, the woman, because in a lot of Muslim communities, unfortunately, there's so, so much stigma on divorce that a lot of women know that if they were, to, or their parents know that if a woman was, divorced it's very unlikely for her to remarry whereas obviously when we talk look at the early muslim community they didn't have that stigma you have so many examples of women that were married i mean divorced two three four times and there was no shame attached towards the um, divorce the way it is nowadays and that's why again it's not just a case of make marriage so easy but also our attitudes towards divorce also needs to change because like i said if a relationship doesn't work for every reason a woman should be able to divorce I mean, to remarry relatively easy, but it's not only the issue that, it's not really the women that have that issue, I would say, it's the men and how we view purity and this idea that, you know, you have to only marry a virgin, she can't be touched, or let alone be married, be, having been married before. And it's quite strange because even outside the Muslim community, like in the West, non-Muslims, people also will look at, so if someone's had three or four long-term committed relationships, that's fine. But if they were to hear someone's been divorced twice, there's more stigma attached towards that person. Again, because of the Christian model that, yes, it, ideally marriage should be forever, but it can, you can know, things might not work out. You can go your own ways. And Islamically, there's, there's, that's, that's okay. But well, because, it's, like, Islamically, it's a contract, right? It's a contract. It's a, if, I, the, if I had three or four different jobs in the last 15 years, you wouldn't say you're, com- you're unemployable. Or, you know, even if I quit two, got fired from the other two, that doesn't mean... I'm I'm no good now, right? And so, but yeah, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but you're right. There is these constructs of uh, it has to be forever, even though that's also absurd. Nothing's forever, right? Anyways, but <laughs> yes. But again, it's, it, again, it's like when we speak about the concept of haya, it's like I would argue we've adopted either Victorian, Christian, extremely prudish approach to understanding of haya. Similarly, the way we look at marriage and divorce, that if a woman has been divorced, people think something's wrong with her, she's broken, why is it the marriage didn't work out? And that's not only Muslim circles, but Western circles. But if a woman has had relationships and dated and hasn't worked out, people wouldn't have those that same view. And I'm always perplexed by that, is that, okay, why is it if a woman is, like I said, had three or four relationships, again, amongst generally amongst non-Muslims, it's, it's not seen as anything it's like she's learned from it, but if she's had 
one or two divorces, it's like, because divorce is marriage supposed to be final. It's supposed to be your, you know, your soul tie or your soulmate. And if that doesn't work out, then you're inherently broken and wrong. And that's not the Islamic understanding. So there is a lot of work that I think needs to be done in terms of changing our understanding towards not only about intimacy, but marriage and divorce. Um, because again, we can solve, we might be able to solve one issue where marriage is made relatively easy. But then if you've still got the stigma towards divorce, even if a woman's married very easily, she wouldn't necessarily want to maybe get divorced because it's going to be very difficult to remarry. And especially right. because a lot of the Muslim men might have the attitude that I can't marry a woman that's been divorced before. And that's like, from an Islamic perspective, that's ab absurd where, you know, because that's not... From it can heritage. happen to men too, by the way. I remember a few yeah. cases where men were divorced, no kids even, but sometimes they may have kids. And it, it would be a turnoff for the family that he was courting. Right. Like, no, he's been married before or he has a kid. And so that's sad because the Prophet him, all of his wives were widowed or married before him. And again, he's the best of creation. Imagine, you know, it's like and he didn't make that a problem or make women feel discarded in that way. Also, another thing, and I know this is not really spoken about. And again, I don't know why in modern circles this is considered to be taboo. But again, if you look at the classical text, it wasn't. The Prophet Muhammad peace upon him also went through divorce, and people don't really talk about that. Tell us this. Tell us the story. So, the, sure. so the story of when the Prophet married a woman, um, and this hadith is reported in um, Bukhari, so it's an authentic report um, from Jurania, from a tribe called Jurania. He married, and it's a beautiful, beautiful story. So again, I'm paraphrasing, but he married this this lady, um, and then when he was um, entered the marital home. She at the time did not want to have marital relations with the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him, and she said some words in, into effect of "I seek refuge in Allah from you." Now, this is again, this is a, a strong statement, and obviously the Prophet also detected that maybe she had some reservations because prior to them getting married, she con he contracted that marriage with her father. Her father was given the impression that she wanted to marry the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him. Now, initially, the Prophet tried to comfort her because initially she was refraining and he stretched out his hand to try and comfort her and she kind of refrained and then she said those words. And then the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, obviously understood that she didn't want to remain married, uh, married him. So he let her go he's, he, and he said a he told his companion, um, you know, she let her go back to her family. And then he also said, give her two, like, two white linen, like two gifts as well, to treat her well as a, as a, as a gift. So not only did they divorce amicably, but also gave her a parting gift. Now, there was no, this, this is not seen as, you know, like shameful or how can the prophet go for divorce? Or, but also, what's also important is that the prophet did not enforce himself on his wife. This was his wife that he was legitimately obviously married to. For whatever reason, she didn't want to continue relations. He, that's fine. He didn't force, he didn't say the angels will curse you. How can right. you, don't, you know, I'm your I'm the messenger of Allah. Messenger Are you nuts? And this is something, <laughs> even that story that we don't really, People don't really know about that. Or the story when uh, the hadith from the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, when he married Sophia, and on their wedding night, she he wanted to consummate the marriage. She, she didn't want to at the time. He didn't force himself on it. He left, he left it be. And then after they consummated the marriage, and then she actually told him the reason why she didn't want to consummate the marriage at that time is because she was fearful that I think the, the, um, the non-Muslim was going to attack because I think there was a way on a, on a military expedition. But he didn't even ask her the reason why you don't want to consummate the marriage on the wedding night. So that's like an example where the prophet didn't enforce himself on his wife. So even 
I hear a lot from Muslim women, you know, they're worried about like a marital rape and things like that. And does it exist in Islam? And it's like, of course, a man is not allowed to force himself on his wife. But because, again, we haven't got this holistic approach of understanding human sexuality, intimacy from the Quran and the Sunnah, we've just got the legal rulings and some hadiths and some hadiths are taken out of context and misunderstood. That's why you're having women who are afraid of marriage because it's like, I'm going to marry a man. This is what I'm hearing a lot that I'm not connected to, I don't know. Um, I'm hearing so many horror stories from other Muslim women who are married, which is, again, is problematic. I mean, although they may be true, it's problematic as well. So they look at marriages, the only thing I'm going to get out of it is I'm leaving my parents home because I want to escape my parents home or maybe to have some kids. But in terms of having a healthy, loving, affectionate relationship with another human being, with your spouse that hopefully you're attracted to, that's not really spoken about. It's just like a transactional marriage that I'm going to get the kids some money and then I can go on some this and that's problematic. So this, you know, loving marriage that we see from the examples of the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him, that is something that we should also inspire to have both men and women alike. But because we don't have these, we don't hear about these stories, we're not educated um, from a, like a holistic framework. We just look at marriages, like I said, purely for procreational purposes or some cases kind of get out of our, our parental home, which, which is again, it's... Um, what happened to it being half our deed, you know? Yeah. It's a it's a spiritual, emotional, personal, transformative journey, isn't yeah. it? It is. It is. How are we doing on time, brother? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm however long you've got. I'm fine. I'm, I, was, I, said, I said it how it should be because one of the things also I've noticed is quite troubling is that, and you see this not only in the Muslim community but the wider community is like the disconnect between men and women, where it's a lot of like this gender war, where. I know a lot of men are now kind of getting um, inf infatuated by this whole red pull rhetoric. I don't know if you've seen, I'm sure you've seen that. Sure. And obviously with women, with the feminism, and it's like you can't have a conversation between, you know, the two and the way just fighting. And it's just like, I'm always wondering, like, do they not want to have healthy relationships with one another? And again, I mean, the way I look at that, I think a number of people who are in healthy relationships, they don't need to shout it from the rooftops. Right. But because there's those who are maybe frustrated or maybe they've gone through some bad experience for whatever reason, they're the voice that often people hear. And what is disheartening about this is that those who aren't or maybe looking to get married or thinking about it, they're just hearing these, you know, these voices, these dissenting voices, and they're thinking, it's no point getting married or men are like this or women are thinking, or men think women are like this. It's like they don't look at as marriage as, as something that's going to not only nourish um, their mind and body but also their soul they don't look at it as something that is something that they want to be a part of um, right. and there's so much like it just like, seems like a big threat risk danger rather than yeah. sakina muwaddatan warahman all these things that the quran tells us if it's a healthy marriage you're going to experience this type of fulfillment right um it is yeah it is a very difficult time and i know people on both ends right like men who are like i'm not getting married bro yeah, it's like, well, yeah. well, what are you going to do, man? Fast the rest of your life or keep making telephone, you know? <laughs> yeah. no, that, that's just the reality because, because it's, it's, and again, I can understand because if someone has gone through um, a difficult marriage, both male or female, it can affect, of course, that you we're human beings and you wouldn't want to go through that. So then it's like, okay, but my question, do you still want to have that relationships? In most cases, it's yes. So, okay, so you want to have relationships, but you don't want to have it within marriage. Is it that, is it the marriage that's the issue or it's the type of marriage that you maybe had before you don't want to go into it again? Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's what it's not that they don't want to have, generally speaking, a relationship with opposite sex. It's not like, oh, I hate women or I hate, or women say I hate men. It's because of that marriage that I went through and it was so destructive for whatever reason. I don't want to go through that again, where it, with the brother's case, it might be because financially, it could, you know, you could have finished him, which I can understand you don't want to go through that again. But then it's like, okay, then maybe it's a legal marriage and how that was set up. That's the reason why. And then with the woman's side, like there's one particular sister that sent, um, me a message recently where she recently converted to Islam, recently embraced Islam, studying a lot, you know, mashallah, learning from so many different scholars and so much, attending so many like workshops and this and the other, went through, and I'll use it inverted commas, like the right way of getting married, um, had maybe one or two meetings at the most with potential um, spouses. And um, the imam at her local mosque recommended a particular brother, um, but he was married, but he said he was going through a divorce. So then they got married after maybe two, two, three meetings, no more than 30 minutes. So she didn't really get to know that particular man. And she'd been married before. I mean, she had relations before she's got a child. So it's not like she was, you know, she has had any experience with opposite sex. But obviously now becoming a Muslim, she was trying to seek guidance in terms of what is the quote unquote Islamic way of getting married. This is what she was told. So she followed all of this advice to the T. Then when she got married, she was married for maybe like, I think no more than four or five months, she wanted a divorce. Because the husband didn't even introduce her to his family. He was still married. She was basically like a secret second wife. Um, he just ha have relations with her, fulfill his desires, then leave, wouldn't even spend some time with her, didn't even get to know her, wasn't interested even in her daughter. And so for her, it was like, it was this, I've done everything what I was told to do, like the Islamic way, and this is what, this is the, the result. I'd rather continue dating how I was before. Right. as a non-Muslim because I would have a better connection and this is a problem better so what experience. I was trying to is that this isn't Islam that was it's a very obviously bad experience that you had but just because you had some people who are maybe knowledgeable who gave this stamp of approval and this person appeared to be religious because they had a beard and spoke Arabic every now and again it doesn't mean that this was the marriage that the Prophet Muhammad peace upon him and Allah is speaking about in the Quran and that's mm -hmm. a problem so you've got that issue as well where i see that th those type of marriages a lot and again that's why people are like anti like religious marriages because of some again bad experiences and i'll argue that's not from the religion right yeah no people's trauma is for real and you know once you experience a traumatic event around any subject or topic you're naturally going to be extra protective right and your threat response is on alert uh, but yeah it's um it is, it is sad to hear such stories like this because there's a lot of people, they, you know, hence that statement, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, I, I never liked the statement, but in certain cases it does apply. Like I'm trying to do the good, I'm trying to do the right thing, and then this happens to me, right? And then sometimes if we're immature in our iman, we say, why did God do this to me? I was trying to do the right thing. I was trying to follow his religion. I was trying to please Allah the whole time, and then I get shafted, you know? So it is sad and, you know, my heart goes out to people in situations like this because, I mean, this is also why Allah says, you know, that some Muslims are going to be a test for other Muslims, right? Like Muslims are human beings too. We mess up. We are ignorant. We're, we've got problems. We've got flaws. And unfortunately, we can sometimes use the Islam card or manipulate or weaponize Islam for our own ego, our own agenda, our own culture. Uh, and end up causing harm, right? And Islam is, as a teaching, meant to 
forbid evil, promote good, and enhance benefit and protection and reduce harm and risk and danger to the human being, right? Um, in this world and the next. And so it's, it is unfortunate when I think especially new converts, people are in a, in a sense taken advantage of. There are many cases like this where unfortunately people are taken advantage of because they now rely or trust in the authority or the people who've been Muslim and then they end up unfortunately manipulating them or taking advantage of that vulnerability, which only Allah knows how he's going to handle people who do that to others. That uh, I mean, it's like we know what we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us and so does the Prophet around the merit of taking care of orphans because of the same reason, right? They're vulnerable. They don't have the same level of protection. They may not have anybody. And so to abuse or manipulate or exploit an orphan, man, that is bad news for you, right? And the same thing goes for any human being. If you exploit, manipulate them in times of vulnerability or weakness or lack of education and so forth. So yeah, it's, uh, it is a reality that occurs. That's true, but I always try to be optimistic and and encourage people to strengthen. And even if you're a new Muslim convert or been Muslim all your life, to always remember to have that relationship with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, because Allah will never let you down. I think you can always have periods where people that you might have expected better from, whether they're Muslim, religious, or what have you, might disappoint you. But if you have that relationship with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, you're referring back to the Quran often as well you'll find inspiration from people in different situations and you can be inspired by that but if you're just looking or expecting your sheikh to give you that inspiration that for me i'm always quite troubled by that because if your sheikh lets you down that can affect your your faith your iman whereas if you've got a relationship with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you'll rely on the quran you'll be inspired by these stories you, you can be inspired by people that like this when you just even reflect on the story of um, mariam and asia these were, if you were to look in our, you know, how it might be described in our modern day context as a single mother who was accused of adultery and another woman who was in an abusive relationship that Allah used as two examples, not only for women, but for the believers, which mm. refer to as examples. So it's not to say that we should want tribulation and trials, but no, they're saying that even someone who's in a tribulation is how they respond to it. That these, you can have be in this situation and you could be the most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so if you're reflecting and thinking about that then because I think that sometimes the way I think sometimes the way that Islam is taught nowadays is that it's like this whole kind of prosperity preaching if you do this you're going to have the greatest life this is going to happen that's going to happen it doesn't necessarily work like that things can happen you can have a truck but it's how you it's how you um, how you respond to that and that's something that even the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him spoke about you know, the wonders of the believers that in whatever situation he's blessed. If he's in a ni'mah, if he's in a good state and he's thankful, then he's rewarded for that. If he's in a trial, or again, also a woman's in a trial tribulation and they're patient as well, they're also going to get rewarded for that. So in both cases, you're going to be, you're in a good state. So again, it's just A, how we view whatever we're going through and then how we respond to that. So if you equip male or female, young or old, that understanding, which is a prophetic understanding, then inshallah whatever you're going through that's not going to affect hopefully your iman if anything will strengthen it and then you know you can see the the silver lining in every kind of situation that's how i try and i think that's important as a muslim kind of think about that absolutely sir 
And um, the the other book, what was the title again? Kunsi. <laughs> Kunyaza. So I actually wrote, so Kunyaza is a book that, um, interestingly enough, maybe because of some of the backlash that I received from A Taste of Honey, and it wasn't as well received as I thought it would be when it, it was released in 2016. I, I thought, okay, let me write a book, again, to do with human sexuality or female sexuality, but not really aimed at a Muslim audience. And that was okay. a book that explores um, a tradition from East Central Africa and Rwanda where um, women, where men are taught from a relatively young age to ensure that their wives are sexually satisfied and not only experience um, sexual climax or orgasm, but also female ejaculation. And it's very known, it's normalized over there. And for me, it was quite interesting because from a cultural perspective, the way they viewed female ejaculation or whatever you call it, known as squirting, there was no stigma attached towards it. Whereas in the Western world, there's a lot of stigma and shame towards it. So I, I found it quite refreshing. And that's why I thought, okay, it'd be interesting to kind of um, study that and obviously put it in the form of a book. Um, and then it got picked up by the BBC in 2020 and I made a documentary called the Orgasm Gap. And that, and funny enough, when that book came where can, out- Where can you uh, find this documentary? So the documentary is on um, it's on YouTube. So there's the full documentary, sixty minutes, which is on BBC World Service. It's called the Orgasm Gap, and then there's uh, the um, video documentary, which is about thirteen minutes, eleven minutes. It's called Rwanda Sexual Pleasure and Controversy. I think. So. But if you put Rwanda Sexual Pleasure and um, put Kunyaza, it should come up. So that's the eleventh minute, eleven minute documentary on YouTube. For the full documentary, um, is on BBC World Service. But so, yes, yeah, so when that book came out, um, again, that was aimed at general public, not just Muslims. Then all of a sudden, more Muslims were interested in my work and then was asking me about A Taste of Honey. And I was just like, subhanAllah. So, 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 so I have just present a non-Muslim framework or not use Islam or um, Allah and the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then people are more comfortable. And that's what I realized as well as maybe the marketing, shall we say, of when we're speaking about certain topics, because I always felt... Why is it that as Muslims, we are very comfortable to embrace concepts that from, from non-Muslims, but as soon as someone is clearly identifying themselves as a Muslim or saying it's from Islamic sources, Muslims feel quite reluctant to kind of embrace it, especially if it's in relation, in relation to relationships, intimacy and sex and sexuality. And that might be because the way they, they view, you know, like religion being just about rules. But if you were to say spirituality, if you were to talk about love languages, then people are more kind of forthcoming. So that's something which... Um, so then after Kunyazan, like I said, came out in 2018, I actually wrote another book called Women of Desire, A Guide to Passionate Love and Sexual... A Guide to Passionate Love... A Guide to Passionate Love and Sexual Compatibility. Um, that came out more open and just understanding that. Because even when we speak about Muslims, are we speaking about Muslims in America? Are we speaking about Muslims in the UK? In West Africa, North Africa? They've got different approaches. Not everyone... We're not a monolith, so it's important right. that um, educators, um, self-sexual health educators, are also kind of aware of that as well. How does your wife feel about you being a sexual educator or an author of books with such quote-unquote racy subjects? Is that something uh, she supports you in, or it's nor it's so normal to her? Like it, whether you wrote a book about history or sexuality, she's you know, is, does she come from a culture where this is also something? more commonplace in the understanding yes i think both my missus my parents are very supportive if anything encourage me Good. to write more to do more workshops um 
have given me ideas, more ideas than people probably would realize that even when I'm being attacked, not realizing that I'm actually, I've been told, not advised um, to put this out there. So again, that's why I look at for myself, maybe not everyone has that support system. So again, if, if it was me by myself and have that support system it can be extremely difficult, especially with some of the backlash, I think, but then also realizing the greater goal, hopefully, and it's not necessarily for someone who might have issues with it. So if you have issues with it, it's not for you. If you're comfortable with that, I'll be more concerned if what I'm presented is factually incorrect. So if I'm misquoting, if I'm saying something that someone didn't say, and stuff, that's I'll be more concerned with. If someone doesn't agree with my methodology, that's fine. That's fine. If someone doesn't agree with my approach, my style, or my conclusion, again, that's fine as well. But um, in terms of like the topic matter at hand, it's not for everyone. And I've always been, maybe because even how it was brought up, I'm not uncomfortable with this topic. I've never really been uncomfortable with it. There was a period of time where when I was learning Islam, um, when I because I wasn't always quite religious, and then when I wanted to learn more about the religion, and I kind of went on a path of a more, I could say, Salafi or very strict approach. I thought everything was haram, and you can't do this. You can't. so that's so when I was in that period of my life, then yes, I would have been felt really shocked to kind of talk about this topic because I thought it was inappropriate and un-Islamic and haram. But when I found out that no, actually there is a heritage from of scholars speaking about this, um, and then I realized that again, some communities again are more comfortable with it than others then those who are comfortable with it they can learn and those who are not comfortable with, with it then it's not for you it's, it's fine it's not my it doesn't have to be for everyone and i think it's important that people understand that because i think sometimes people feel that they need everyone to validate or approve their work and you know i think that's that's a, a very hard ask so again for those who benefit from it inshallah bismillah you can learn from it those who feel uncomfortable with it then that's fine then maybe and i also try to talk about or give other examples within the muslim community as well that are doing maybe similar work to, to myself um because then they can reach out because some people like they've got different styles and some people they can relate to more than others so i try to amplify other people's voices because i don't want people to feel that i'm the only one even if i might be the only person they come across i'm not the only one there are others right. so uh, it's like yeah, pizza we, we, so many people love pizza at any 20 mile radius, you're going to have 10 different pizza shops. Why? Because people love, you know, different little variations of how it's made or delivered. And I think that's very important too, is, you know, people have different temperaments. They enjoy different speakers or different way knowledge is presented, different methodologies. Um, so it's great. So there are other Muslims that you know of that are in this, let's say, industry of sexual education specifically not just like relationships and marriage, because this would fall under also kind of the broader category of the marriage industry in Islam, let's say, right? Yes, yes. So there is Angelica Linti Ali, um, who's known as a village auntie. So she is a certified sexual health educator over 20 years of experience um, teaching um, such matters, not only about um, human sexuality, but also about um, intimacy she's also trained religiously as well so she understands fiqh, things like that so and she's um so so well versed not only the traditional islamic sciences but also understands from contemporary sexologists um and erotologists and the like so she's definitely someone that um i respect her work highly um and try to amplify her voices as well as others there's um other people like i said in the community that teach like vaginismus um like amira zaki she's based in the uk Fetz Rafiq, again based in the UK, um, Mariam 
Lemu, who's um, a marriage counselor, speaks about intimacy. She's based in 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 Nigeria. Um, so there are many. There are, and again, like I said, and I, and I think it's important to highlight these voices, especially the um, the women voices, is because often I think it's more. I think it's better that women go to women. If I'm honest with you, I don't sure. think it should be like going to a man all the time. Be more comfortable, but. I think one of the challenges is that some women feel like only men are the authority and that's problematic because no. within our tradition, like I mentioned earlier, like with Aisha, our mother, who was an authority in Islam, she was a scholar in her own right and men and women used to seek knowledge from her. So it's important that those voices are amplified and then people can, and then also there's men like yourself who are doing great work um, and also people who can, people that they respect like respect that their research not just because someone has studied islam all of and the, or maybe they're married and all of a sudden they can they're trained to be a counselor or a psychologist or a therapist because there's a difference between being married and being successfully married or happily married or in a healthy relationship so it's those individuals again who had the necessary training that i'll, I'll try and amplify their voices not just because someone is, is a muslim because i do get some people who just reach out and say oh, i'm just starting this page i'm trying to promote and be a marriage counselor can you like share my page and i just don't reply so i'm not i don't get paid by promoting people's work but it's people that i've either appreciated or acknowledged or respect their work i'll you know share it but not just because someone is um see this as a, as a new business that they can try and like they want to get a bit of followers i, I don't do it for anyone so right on well, I respect your work. I love it. Um, it's, it's great to have this conversation today. And uh, again, people check out A Taste of Honey. We'll have a list of Brother Habib's books, his website, workshops online at um, irritologyinstitute.com. That's where they can also go and learn online. Work and your company, how can people contact you? Again, because I want to click this part. So that's I, why. I appreciate it. Yeah, Nood, you can find my work, uh, visit NoodHumanConsulting.com, Nood, N-O-O-R, HumanConsulting.com. And then, of course, there's the Coffee with Kareem podcast if you want to you know, hear more interesting interviews like this one and learn different, um, have hear just different discussions on topics of psychology, spirituality, and relationships. Those are my three main focuses. Jazakallah khairan. Yeah, if you want to click that part. Yeah. Brother Habib, I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I'd love to talk to you again soon, inshallah. And uh, I want to also ask. Coffee with Karim Podcast.